0: I think uh, we got most. I think Joseph, who's a big fan of ours, uh, is going to be coming around one. Um, so I think we pretty much got everyone. If I'm missing someone, my apologies. But, uh, you know, uh, I just want to welcome everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, welcome to our phomic space. We're living through interesting times right now. Uh, I'm Unusual Whales, and we're super happy to discuss inflation, the macro trends going on with uh, these excellent experts here. Nicholas, the guy with the uh, Spider-Man mask, will be conducting the discussion today. So uh, glad to have everyone, and uh, let's begin.
1: Welcome, welcome, everybody. Sorry about that. My mic would not unmute for me. So kind of how things will go is everybody on the panel, after I do some introductions here, feel free to plug anything you're working on, anything you got coming up. And as well, during the discussion, feel free to chime in at any time. The only request that I have in general about this is that as others are talking, please keep your mics muted so we can avoid any echo. But feel free to chime in, you know, in between speakers at any time to give your two cents if you have something to add, anything you, you know, don't agree with. Feel free to jump in at any time. Love to have that discussion going. No need to raise your hand or anything. So with that said, we'll jump right into it. I'm going to run down our list of panelists today. Again, feel free to plug anything you've got going on. We'll start off with Jem Carson, volatility expert. He's the founder of Kai volatility, which you should be subscribed to if you're not already. He's an incredibly passionate educator in the options volume flow space, as well as one of the best traders in it as well. Welcome Jam. Glad to have you back. Thanks for, uh,
2: thanks for having me. Happy to be here guys. Uh, If anybody wants to read our most recent newsletter uh, uh, about uh, kind of inflation and and the the spot the the Fed finds themselves in, go to kibaltilly.com backslash news. Uh, Happy to be here.
1: Happy, as always, to have you, man. Thanks again. Up next, the last bear standing. The Last Bear stands strong against rising equities, has been a great force at showing deteriorating market conditions. Last Bear is an expert on Chinese real estate and has an incredible newsletter that you should also be subscribed to. If you're not, please do. Welcome back, Last Bear.
3: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to do these spaces uh, with all the other great panelists here. So um, thanks for having me. And if you like uh, listening to my stuff, you can follow me here on Twitter um, and follow my Substack. But looking forward to it
1: as am i last bear thank you next we've got ben hunt a well-known individual on twitter already ben's the founder of epsilon theory one of the greatest newsletters out there studying game theory and history in general has a great voice for markets memes and jokes during the january 2021 situation subscribe to his newsletter as well folks welcome ben
4: hey great to be here um really appreciate being here with uh the, the panel, I'm not going to plug anything I'm working on, but I am going to ask, uh, when people get a chance, just go Google something called the Congressional Apportionment Amendment. That's all I want to say. The Congressional Apportionment Amendment, it is something I'm working on, but it has nothing to do with markets, just uh, trying to get out of this widening gyre that we're in
1: uh, with politics. Thanks. Fair enough, man. Always good to branch out and continue spreading your voice where you can. I really appreciate that, Ben. Northman Trader up next. A great source of charts and memes, of course. Sven has a great newsletter, beautiful market dashboards, and he's an active guest on CNBC. We welcome him and his expertise as always. Welcome, Sven. How are you doing?
5: Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm you know, ahead of this most important FIT meeting ever again seems like they they always are.
1: Bit of a pattern there for sure. It
5: is. So let's have it.
1: Yes, sir. Up next, Michael Cow is the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager of the Cow Family Office. Having worked previously at Acanthos Capital Management, he's an expert in commodities, index arbitrage, and dynamic hedging. Welcome, Michael. Great to have you here.
0: Hey, really I appreciate being included in a in a new crowd. I've done a bunch of these spaces recently, but I don't think I've ever uh, interacted with uh, any of you other panelists on this particular panel. So appreciate the opportunity to to join and interact with uh, new new friends on Twitter.
1: And absolutely stoked to have you here, man. Thanks for joining us next. 42 Macro, Double D, Dale, Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro, the leading macro risk management advisor. He's all about actionable macro investment framework and rivals jam for gift royalty. Honored to have you here as always, Darius. How you doing?
6: I'm well, man. Thanks, Nicholas. Appreciate you having me on this uh, fantastic panel. I'll do my best not to, uh, not to spoil bringing up the rear. So uh, looking forward to it.
1: Hey man, all you guys can really do is add to the conversation. If anybody's spoiling anything here, it is me. Oh, so, <laughs> love having you here, man. Thanks for coming. So, I think we can go ahead and jump right into this. I'm gonna start off with a little bit of data and a question for you. So, first of all, with the CPI print at 8.3%, which came in above expectations and kind of remaining a bit sticky in some senses, And with core personal consumption expenditure slowing down to 4.6% from 4.8% in the prior month, which was also below the market expectations of 4.7%, a new 52-week high for the dollar, slumping retail confidence, treasury highs since 2008. What I want to know from you folks here on the panel today is how will the Fed and you personally look at this data from last week? Jim, can you start us off here?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, uh, John Alti's put out a, a, a nice uh, chart yesterday uh, that I suggest everybody go take a look at. Uh, energy's contribution to CPI is declining uh, significantly. Uh, services continues to rise sharply. This is what we've called for and uh, wrote about in our newsletter. Uh, that uh, it's almost like a straight line for services, and we continue we continue to expect that 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 will. Uh, that sticky part of inflation will continue to rise higher. Um, the only reason commodities haven't, in our opinion, haven't gone higher. Again, people will argue it's because of the looming recession, et cetera, um, but uh, is because of the SPR, the dramatic release of SPR. Uh, you know that is a political um, uh, thing that's happening. We've, we've emptied two thirds uh, of the SPR. Um, what happens when, when we no longer have the ability to, to dump oil on the market and, and control the commodity side of things? Um, the tail there uh, for commodities inflation is actually, despite what you hear, is actually uh, getting much worse, we think. So um, there's a lot of, of, you know, the fact that we're seeing underlying inflation despite what's going on, um, you know, it really is a, is a major issue. Uh, today's number, whether it's 75 basis points, uh, or, or 100. I, I like, uh, you know, uh, Michael Cow's uh, comment is like looking at the treads of, of the bulldozer that is, um, you know, about to run you over. It doesn't really matter. Um, you know, what, what matters are these underlying trends and what we're seeing, and they're all in line with what we would expect historically. Um, and, and, you know, if it were positioning in the market, if it wasn't for kind of the political actions of, of uh, kind of the U.S. government right now, uh, would be way, way worse and, and and way more dramatic now. I still think uh, the overhang is dramatic.
1: Yeah, good points there as always, Jim. I want to kick it to Michael here in regards to SBR and commodities regarding inflation. Michael, what are your thoughts? Sure.
0: So um, you know, for over the last year and a half, um, well, for for longer actually, I've had a I've had a multi year um, thesis on the structural underinvestment in specifically in the oil space um and so about a year and a half ago i started uh, really just getting active on twitter for the first time and tweeting about how i think the the confluence of you know underinvestment given the the uh, bear market in oil we've had from 2014 to you know 202019 um, plus the incredible amount of stimulus uh, post-COVID heaped onto the economy, uh, plus the the uh, blatantly hostile uh, policies that the current administration has undertaken with respect to this industry, I felt that it would create a, a almost a perfect storm structurally, longer term for oil, um, and. And at that time, it was still a relatively out of consensus bet. And then starting in the fall of 21, I started thinking that, you know, commodity price inflation would basically make our Fed much more hawkish and ahead of the rest of the world in terms of hiking and therefore create what I call the dollar wrecking ball. So, so far, both of those things have panned out, and what used to be sort of out of consensus has become somewhat consensus now. Um, what I agree with what, what, uh, what Jen just said. I, I, I think that in the next couple of years, um, we will hit a, what I call a structural supply and demand singularity point for oil where even a recession-impacted demand level exceeds global supply. I don't think, however, we are there yet. I think that um, you know, about a month ago, I wrote a thread entitled uh, you know, The Asian Contagion 2.0. And one of my black, like short-term black swan concerns is that this relentless dollar wrecking ball is going to set off a chain of disorderly devaluations, somewhat similar to the 97-98 crisis, crisis, except this time they're impacting G7 currencies as opposed to just EM currencies. And so, you know, I'm longer term bullish on oil and the short term I have concerns. Um, I guess I'll just leave it at there for now.
1: Fair enough, Michael. Thank you so much. So, I want to throw these topics to the panel at large here. With a strong dollar, energy singularity, and what Michael and Jam said, what are your thoughts here, folks?
4: I'll go first. This is Ben, if you don't mind. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, you know, it's something I said on the when we had this the spaces about the uh, the CPI report last week, which is that you know pretty pretty early on in any sort of macroeconomic call it crisis, right? The market moves from thinking about levels to thinking about uh, expectations. And so, you know, this happened around uh, unemployment, around the great financial crisis, pretty quickly, pretty early on. Uh, It happened around inflation, I think, kind of pretty early this summer, where for markets, it became much less about levels, right, and much more about expectations. And it's been, you know, it's in that way, I think forever, whenever we're talking about you know, what's the, the, the Fed going to do on, on, on a given hike. The reason I think this is so important is because there's a real disjuncture between how markets approach this kind of stuff and how policymakers, whether you're sitting at the Eccles building or whether you're sitting in the White House, how they think about it, because they are thinking in terms of levels. They are thinking in terms of levels. And what the White House has got to do, what they're desperate for, is to string together, you know, a dozen months of 0.2 percent increases in CPI, because I mean it's just math. You put 12 of them together, your inflation rate's 2.4 something percent. It's just math. And so they're sitting there hoping that's going to come to pass to get to a level where they can declare victory the Fed, you know, they're, when the they're level is that they, okay, what's our, what's our Fed funds rate? Right? And it, Powell said something crazy at the, crazy to me at least, at the, at the July hike, right, where he said that, oh, we got to, you know, we're up at whatever, 2.3% or something like that, 2.3, 2.35%. We're pretty close to neutral here. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that was just nuts. That was insane. And the, the reason I'm saying that that's nuts and that's insane is I think that Powell, you know, they, you know, he had governors go out and kind of backtrack on that, and I think he definitely realizes that's insane too. Because what we're seeing is that the Fed hikes to date, and this will include the hike they'll make today, they haven't done anything in the real economy. There's been no bite to the hikes so far in the real economy. We are so far away from a neutral rate, I think, you know, personal view is 4.5% to get to a neutral rate. And what I mean by that is you've got to go over 4.5% before these rate hikes start to bite in the real economy. They'll bite a lot earlier than that in markets and in the financial economy, but in the real economy what I mean is how they impact corporate allocation, productivity, hiring decisions you know, real business decisions by real corporations in the real world. So we are so far away from getting to that neutral level where what the Fed is doing has any impact on what's happening in the real economy with inflation expectations and avoiding it from being embedded. Right now they're just hoping to get lucky. Right? That's <laughs> that's where the White House is right now for sure. You know, and and where I think this ends up is this is why you've seen this spate of articles. Of yeah, you know, we talked about it. You know, on the in the lead up to this to this spaces, with uh, you know Nick Timmeraas, who's the amanuensis of the of the Fed these days, publishing the the you know the directed piece on Monday about how you know Paul Volcker is is Powell's inspiration. Look, this is not accidental. So whatever the hike is today, whatever and however, you know, that meets or doesn't meet expectations of the markets, I'm sure it's going to be 75 dips. I'm positioned, though, for 100 dips. Why? Because Powell has got to back away from that, oh, we're at a neutral level, and he's got to talk hawkish even after a 75 dips hike, because they've got to get the level to something that actually makes a difference in the real economy if they're going to start making a difference in getting inflation down. So, you know, that's what I think is going on. The market, you know, is still going to react to expectations. But I'm telling you, in both the White House and the Fed, they're thinking about levels. And that disjuncture, you know, means we're going to be all over the place in markets over the next six to nine months. So I'll leave it at that for now.
1: Does anyone else on the panel have any comments on what he just said before I move on to the next question? I'll, All right. Chime oh, go I'll ahead. Chime, yeah.
0: I'll, yeah. I'll chime in. Um, hi, Ben. Um, yeah, I I agree with you. Um, the the one thing I I want to mention is that um, I do think that the blunt tool of fed of the Fed funds rate is a very blunt meat cleaver, um, and the risk I see um, in going significantly above a terminal rate of 4% is that there's there's about I estimate there to be 2.7 trillion of floating rate corporate debt out of 12 point2 trillion total of corporate debt according to Fred um, so if you if you put yourself in the bucket of you know the levered borrower um, that couldn't uh, issue fl- uh, fixed rate debt beginning of this year if they're say, you know, priced at SOFR plus 400, that was a 4% all-in interest expense for the year. By the end of this year, it's going to be double that, right? Um, So, and at the same time, if Fed funds is the only tool that they have to work with, um, you're likely to see um, an inverted yield curve that is going to eviscerate net interest margins at the banks. So I think the concern here is that the Fed, with a Fed funds only tool, um, will create could create some sort of credit type of crisis. Uh, the other, the other, but the problem I see is that a four percent terminal rate won't bring down um, inflation to where exactly it to be right. Yeah. I yes, yes. Michael. So, I am so. in
4: such violent. I am in such violent agreement with everything you said. I'm in violent agreement with everything you said. I, I mean, and yet, that's kind of my base case right now, right? Because what I think Powell's made really clear is he's not going to be remembered as the Arthur Burns or, you know, Bill Miller of our, <laughs> of our generation, right? He wants to be remembered as the guy who got the inflation genie back into the bottle. And you know, he's he's got his words, he's got his balance sheet, and he's got Fed funds. That's it, right? And but look, I'm in such violent agreement with you that, that you end up moving from the frying pan into the fire really quickly when you're using Fed funds as your, as your instrument.
0: What I what I, what I what I what I wanted to mention. I'm sorry. What I wanted to mention, though, is that um, I've advanced a, a theory, just a theory uh, that that is out of consensus, which is a, a Fed slash Treasury Department engineered bear steepener, because what that would accomplish, in my opinion, is that it would target wealth effects by steepening the long end of the yield curve and allow them to keep Fed funds at a low, perhaps a lower rate, say 3%. What if the desired, if there was a desired shape of the yield curve where it was 3% in the front, 6% in the back, that targets wealth effects and targets inflationary effects while still keeping net interest margins positive? So the question, so I'm not a, a, a Fed mechanics or fixed income specialist like, uh, like uh, Joseph is here. Maybe I, w- I would love to hear um, some thoughts about that because in my, in my view, the Fed requires an out-of-the-box solution. Um, when they pushed on the zero bound in 2008, they realized that wasn't enough, so they got creative. Now I view them similarly constrained, practically with a 4%, uh, a, a 4% Fed funds Uh, potentially creating a credit crisis, but yet a 4% Fed funds alone is not enough to cure the inflation problem or put the inflation genie back in the bottle, so to speak.
1: So I definitely want to Spin back to that here in a bit. But first, Darius, I saw that you unmuted. And so I wanted to ask you directly here regarding what Michael was saying about inflation. You've previously said that your work finds that supply chain issues are largely a function of fiscal and monetary authorities over simulating excess demand at a time where there was an observable level of depressed supply for goods and labor around the world. High CPI is supply demand imbalance, as you've said. Care to explain that a little bit, Darius?
6: I think it explains itself. Thanks, Nick. So the one thing I would say to all the discussion here is that I think we sort of, uh, with respect to everyone who's spoken, I think we're sort of missing the point of why the Fed is, is raising interest rates, which is, in my opinion, to keep the, wild, the mound of, of excess liquidity sort of where it is, which is basically trapped in, you know, big balance sheets or, you know, somewhere in a black box in the financial sector, as opposed to allowing it to seep out of into CPI. I mean, just looking at the household balance sheet, you know, we're at 4.9 trillion of cash and checkable deposits right now, which compares to 1.2 trillion prior to the pandemic. We're at 2.1, 2.2 for corporate sector, which compares to 1.6 prior to the pandemic there is a, you know, for lack of a better word, a shit ton of cash on consumer and corporate balance sheets that needs to be restrained by higher interest rates. And if it doesn't get restrained by higher interest rates, I think we know the answer to where it's going to go. It's going to wind up in the CPI. I'll throw a couple of statistics at you and shut up. You know, One thing that I saw in this August CPI report, uh, to Jim's point earlier, which is this continuation of a move from headline inflation into core, which is something we've called out in our research as well, I mean, you look at trim mean CPI, which you know kind of exercises all the noise out of the statistics. And on a month-over-month annualized basis, we shot up to 7.7%. Median CPI shot up to 8.9% on a month-over-month annualized basis. That's the highest print ever. And sticky CPI shot up to 7.7%. So it's very clear that there's a real structural inflation problem. And it's, in my opinion, just a function, a lagged function of how much excess demand we created that continues to sit on consumer and corporate balance sheets. So there's no easy way out of this without them break. They have to break something. Otherwise, that cash is going to wind up at CPI.
1: So I'm going to pivot this over to our newcomer, Joseph. Welcome. I missed you, man. How you been?
7: Hey, guys. Thanks so much for inviting me. Glad to be here. Um, I just wanted to make, uh, I guess, touch upon a few points that Ben and uh, Michael and, and, and Darius made. So I agree with Ben, and I think what Darius suggests is that the monetary policy we have right now isn't really restrictive enough. It it hurts the financial markets, but not so much the real economy. And we may, as Michael suggested, need different tools. And I think the the interest rate tools are not as effective today as they were in the past, partially due to changes. uh, Well, one is path dependency, but also some structural changes in the economy. So um, if you think about what households have as their largest liability, it's it's some mortgages, right so over the past few years, over the past two years, the vast majority of people who have mortgages they were able to refinance into generationally low mortgage rates at three percent or below and when the Fed is hiking rates, you know they these, these people with mortgages, they've already have it locked in now incrementally the new people who buy they're going to have higher mortgage rates but you have enormous amounts of people who already have are locked into low mortgage rates. And so when you hike rates, you're not really taking, you're not really um, just tightening financial conditions for them because their mortgage payments are fixed. Now, this would be different in a country like Canada or New Zealand or Australia, where you have more floating rate uh, mortgages. And that in that case, rate hikes pass through directly, more directly into the the real economy, and it slows down uh, consumption. But in the U.S., we have this structure where it's because of you know 30 year fixed mortgages because we're coming from a very low mortgage rate level that uh, doesn't feed into households as, as, as it as strong as with other countries and it's similar in, in corporate as well I think um, one of the big investment banks had a very good piece showing that the maturity wall for corporates is pretty far far in the future so during the past couple of years uh, when we had low Low rates, a lot of the corporations basically overfunded and pushed away, pushed forward their maturity was. So even as the federal funds rate increases, a lot of the corporate sector is still going to be locked into very low rates for the next few years. And so they're not really going to feel the pinch as much. And that now that structure kind of dampens the effect of, of monetary policy. Now I'm very much in agreement with Michael in that the Fed is probably thinking of new ways to do this because. Uh, a lot of the debt in the system and a lot of, uh, let's say, financial assets aren't really pegged to the short end or even to the medium term, but to the uh, longer dated yields and as well as the the shape of the curve. So what seems to be happening, and I don't know if this is engineered or not, it just seems, I, I suspect that's kind of, you know, there is no grand master plan. But from what I understand, and I've been writing about this for the past few months, is that. Simply on the basis of supply and demand you, you would expect to see higher longer data interest rates and a steeper curve the amount of supply of treasury issuance from QT and from um, the treasury due to the primary deficit is is extraordinary for the for this year and for the foreseeable future we uh, I think they semester about one and a half trillion dollars in in treasury issuance this year or the next and a trillion forever. Uh, for the for the foreseeable future, based on current legislation, which will probably change, will probably have more giveaways. Now, in contrast, uh, before COVID, we were issuing about 500 billion a year. So, with all that issuance, you'd have to expect, from just basically a supply and demand standpoint, that you'd have uh, higher and a steeper curve. So, maybe there that is, there is a plan. I don't think so, but mechanically, it seems like that would be another lever that the authorities could to deafened down on economic activity.
1: So Sven, after what Joseph said here, you've spoken at great length about the current treasury markets and current liquidity conditions. I'd like your perspective here as well, Sven.
5: Well, let me just go back to the original plan, which was the, the Fed wanted, obviously, to slow down the economy. They're actually accomplishing that. And, and the rate hikes have done it, but they also wanted to do it with as much jawboning vis-a-vis actual action as possible. We'll go back to the June press conference Powell gave, and he responded to one of the questions i of this quote here, clearly today's 75 basis point increase is an unusually large one, and I do not expect moves of this size to be common. Then they did it again in July, and now it looks like they're forced to do it again here in September. This is not really what the Fed wanted to do. They've kind of been forced into it by the still persistent readings on CPI and obviously core as well. At the same time, while the Fed went into 2022 <clears throat> with lofty GDP growth projections, they were at 4% in December, 3.3% in march and 1.7 percent in june obviously coming down but still above where actually gdp growth has come in so i'm actually going to disagree with a couple of comments from earlier Uh, the economy is reacting to not only rate hikes but also the dramatic increase in velocity that we've seen in yields the two-year today hit a new high for 2022 above 4%. Last time we've seen that was in October 2007. And while historically it is absolutely correct that the Fed, in order to fight inflation, i.e. during the FOCA years, had to dramatically put the Fed funds rate above core inflation, my argument here is that they can't And and the reason for that is, just taking the two years as an example, in in 2007, when it was at the same level, 4%, debt in in general, public debt was $9 trillion. Now it's almost $31 trillion. It's a massive, massive increase. Debt to GDP ratio has doubled from 61% to 122% now. We're dealing with a very different economy. That's one that's, you know, we've built an empire of debt. And so the economy actually is going to be a lot more sensitive to higher rates for longer. Uh, what I agree with is the expectations game, right? Because markets have, especially since the Jackson Hole speech, reacted to Powell's sudden emphasis on hawkish while he was interpreted to be dovish in July. And yields have run up week after week after week after week, and the 10 years now above the peak where it was in june when markets bottomed at that point and the same thing goes for the dollar the dollar obviously dramatic increase as well just hit a 22 high today as well and you know g7 countries they're not liking any of this uh, the uk pound is down at 37 year lows and the euro obviously below parity and that's creating problems for all these economies hence the boj of japan is openly talking about perhaps going the intervention route um, so there's there's big games at stake and for the Fed to push a positive GDP narrative with a target rate of you know by futures market price in at four and a half percent that just doesn't jive so there has to be some accountability in terms of reality of what's happening there now my point is, from a macro perspective, if yields continue on this route, there is no way, no how. We're going to have a soft landing. And the Fed risks losing kind of control of this somewhat, I would say, you know, very calm correction of bear market that we've been having this year. Everything has been very orderly. There's been no major blowups yet. Everything still looks to be, you know, I guess, respectable. VIX has been very subdued. You know, volatility, yes, in terms of ranges, but not really dramatic um, blowups in, in any shape or form. However, as evidence for this already impact in the economy, while the Fed has been insistent on the labor market being very strong, which is generally true, but we're starting to see cracks appearing. And this this growth deceleration is continuing. You know, I know the Atlanta Fed you know, went from 2.5% GDP growth for Q3 in a couple of weeks down to 0.3. That looks to be conspicuously going negative here in the next few weeks as well. And so my assertion here is that this next rate hike here, 75 basis points, with its lag effects, will virtually guarantee a recession. And if you look back at, and this is my last point here, if you look back at the 80s, Volcker obviously the name that's been quoted here a lot in terms of Powell's new fanboy here, Uh, Folker was able to raise the Fed funds rate significantly above CPI, because debt to GDP was 30% vis-a-vis 122%. Now, it's a very different economy. But the trick, and no, no one talks about this, Folker actually cut rates significantly before CPI even peaked. And while it was still above 10 percent why did he do that because the economy was going into a recession and so the fed back then reacted that too as well now i'm not saying that inflation is going back to two percent anytime soon what i'm saying is that there is a specific precedence that while inflation will come down over a period of time and recession always being the cure for it there is The only history we have in an inflationary environment is the Fed actually starting to cut rates before inflation is anywhere near 2%. So the notion that the Fed is now propagating about higher for longer, I think that will get tested significantly. And I think for all of us right now, when we see the Fed announcement and not only the actual rate announcement, but then obviously the commentary and then the press conference by Powell is to watch closely what happens with yields and with the dollar. Because final point, this is also a game of relativity. If the Fed actually is concerned about growth now slowing more dramatically than what they had expected, there's and it's it wouldn't be a pivot, but just a hint at a slowdown or a pause, going back to my earlier comment from Powell in June, that he did not expect these heavy rate hikes to be very um, common. From a narrative point of view, it may make sense for the Fed to start slowing down or even pausing at some point and assess the lag effects as they go through the economy, at which point when you have central banks like the ECB still having to play dramatic catch-up, this would impact currencies. And it may be, at that point, then dropping the dollar a bit, which could be positive equities if yields cooperate with that as well. So real quick before we spin
1: off, you brought up a really good point that I wanted to drive on. Uh, Your comment on Volcker. So Jam, you recently mentioned on a podcast with Natalie Brunel that the Fed is making a policy area. Ultimately, you're saying that even if they have a mandate to control inflation, this myth as you said of Volcker stopping inflation is completely false care to explain that a little bit
2: yeah look amidst all this discussion is 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 an important bigger picture issue right there's structural inflation and then there's cyclical inflation right you can
4: control
2: the cyclical aspects by by dampening economic activity in theory but there are structural effects that can be made actually worse through that process that's what we saw in the 60s and 70s. Populism, uh, the Great Society program, all of the fiscal spending was reinvigorated and, and more of it ended up coming because of the cyclical um, you know, uh, damage that, that raising interest rates does. I would argue, to, to go to uh, Joseph's point, um, you know, it's even worse now because the tools that the Fed uses, which are historically incredibly blunt as, as is, are actually more blunt than ever that barely have any effect. You could argue may even have inverse effects on inflation. Why? Labor share of the economy here in the US domestically is way lower than it's ever been. So the feedback loop through this trickle down, you know, taking money away from what I call Palo Alto corporations does not necessarily lead to massive unemployment here domestically. Uh, that's one. Two, to, to Josie's point, real estate was the other channel which you would affect the middle class from, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s and throughout these other periods, that's no longer as relevant. So the actual levers, the Phillips curve, all these things that we used that the Fed has looked at as, as its means for affecting the actual economy uh, and demand are actually blunter than ever. And you could end up, um, you know, through this process, damaging markets, uh, and, at, at, you know, hurting, hurting broad liquidity in the markets, and ultimately leading to more of a a political fiscal response. Also, the people who don't have 30-year mortgages locked in are millennials. They're the generation who has had uh, less uh, build um, in wealth than than all the other other generations, and they're rising to political power. They're likely to actually be more populist and drive more of these issues um, if we continue to, to have higher rates. If they can't buy a home, if they can't afford it, what do we need? We need more fiscal policy to support those people. So I hey, don't actually agree with this framework at all.
4: Hey, Jim. Can I, sorry. I, I, Jim, I, I think you may be right, and it does not matter. <laughs> right? So, I mean, the tools are what the tools are. And, and I, I always like to come back to this quote by Keynes, you know, when the one we were talking about a sound banker. And uh, to paraphrase, right, he said a sound banker is, you know, someone who – It's not someone who foresees the danger and avoids it, but a sound banker is when they are ruined, they're ruined in a conventional and orthodox way along with all of their fellows, their their fellow bankers, so that no one can blame him. And I keep coming back to this. Powell's not going to go down in the history books as the guy who let the inflation genie get out of the bottle. Now, look, send me, you know, you may well be right, and they've got to pivot. And and Jim, you may be right, they're going to try some new thing and give up their own tools, their old tools. That only happens after an incredible blow up, which we haven't had, and we're not going to have today. You know, the, the new tools come out of desperation. But so long as Powell can. Fail conventionally, <laughs> right? By raising rates, by jawboning his determination, by you know doing what they can on the balance sheet. That's what they're going to do. That's what they're going to do because if the uh, you know, I'm telling I'm, you, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you guys that the guys like Powell, they're thinking about how they go down the history books, and 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 they're not going to go down as the guy who failed unconventionally. They're just not.
2: I don't think we'll allow it. Well, I not agree with you more. That doesn't mean they're not on the right path, right? I think we agree on
0: that. I, I'd love to chime in and riff on a, on a couple of themes that you guys just brought up, uh, if I may. Um, so I, I totally agree with uh, Jem and Darius in saying that, you know, these, you know, Pandora's box, was left open for way too long right it started with commodity price inflation and it's obviously jumped to much stickier components and and i i think that even though it is a rare occurrence um the the setup is very similar to the stagflationary setup we had in the the 60s and 70s now where i think the it is dangerous i shared a I, i shared a tweet in the nest here i said that I think it is dangerous to assume, to conflate GDP contraction with deflation. Um, this chart that is in this shared tweet was put out by Bob Prince of Bridgewater, uh, showing their sort of one year forward, uh, you know, leading expectations of GDP growth and uh, similar leading expectations for inflation. So you see, right, so for pretty much every major economy listed there uh uh except for uh china um they're expecting negative gdp with still very very positive uh inflation and just one more comment on this is that you know in in various FinTwit uh debates that uh, you know whenever whenever i present my sort of Uh, bear steepener uh, thesis as some alternative fed slash treasury toolkit i get pushed back because um the the consensus seems to be that whenever there is a whiff of economic slowing the bond uh the yield curve always inverts and and bonds go up and i say hang on a second take a step back zoom way the fuck out (laughs) and and consider that there is no market or asset class that has a monopoly on prescience and the bond markets and yield curve and inflation expectations are every bit as subject to recency bias as any other asset class. Because let's face it, for the last uh, 30 or 40 years, we've had an endless liquidity lottery uh, that was allowed only by the absence of structural inflation. And that is different now, in my opinion.
1: So I wanna keep this line of reasoning going. Joseph and Darius, uh, Michael mentioned a lot about his bear steepening thesis and the new Fed tools. A lot of people uh, have also spoken about a Fed blowup, that the tools are not effective, markets don't believe them, etc. Will we see a QT 2019 blow up again? Will the Fed back off at the first signs of a volatile market?
7: Now, I think I want to add to Michael's point about, so it seems like there are people who are you know, buying treasuries because they, they see a re- recession. Uh, it's, I think it's important to note that uh, recession, that has to do with real growth. And uh, there's real and there's nominal, and asset prices are nominal. So, for example, if you have a factory and you're producing X amount of cars every day, and then suddenly because of, let's say, some, some supply constraint, you can't get enough raw materials Then you can't produce as much as you did, you have less real growth. Um, However, you could still have very high nominal sales because let's say the government gives people free money or maybe someone goes and takes out a huge bank loan, money is created out of thin air, goes to buy stuff, pushes prices higher. So you can have high nominal growth as we've been having. Uh, Last year, I think GDP grew about almost 10% and very low to negative real growth, which is what we've had perhaps uh, the past three quarters but yields they're nominal assets and when you have GDP curled growing at let's say eight nine percent it really doesn't make sense to nominal GDP growing at let's say eight nine percent to to think of buying yields as a good buying duration as a good idea. Um, in the past when we've had a very stable link between nominal growth and real growth, maybe that makes sense, but that's not the case right now um, with respect to whether or not the Fed would stop if there's a blow-up. What I would propose is that the Fed has actually a lot of tools that could allow it to continue to maintain a very restrictive monetary policy, even if somewhere some somewhere in the financial world there's a blow-up. Um, for example, if you remember back in 2020, there was illiquidity everywhere in the market and the Fed rolled out all these you know, fancy alphabet soup tools. Uh, let's say next month, Something blows up in the corporate credit market, uh, you know, no one can issue anything, and there's distress in the corporate sector. So, usually, I think what we would expect is the Fed to immediately cut rates and maybe do QE. But if inflation isn't tamed yet, they're kind of in a hard place. Then they don't, on the one hand, they have their mandate to tame inflation, and on the other hand, they want to maintain financial stability. Well, now they have enough tools that they could actually do both what they could do, for example, is they could roll out their corporate credit facility and just provide, basically end up as the lender of last resort to the corporate sector like they did in March 2020. They could lend at very high rates, providing liquidity backs up, but without easing monetary policy. So this is just as an illustration. This could be repeated in any other financial market, uh, municipals, for example. Um, So what what I would propose is that even if something blows up, The Fed has enough tools to continue to maintain market functioning uh, and a restrictive monetary policy until they get to a point where they feel that inflation is tamed. So the possibilities here of higher, of a more restrictive policy are vastly extended because of these tools. So I, I wouldn't really just bet on something blowing up and then we all go back to Kiwi and zero rates and everything goes to the moon.
1: So on this topic of blowups, let's, let's kind of pivot here to talk a little bit about the trades people are talking about, blowing up a bit themselves, if you will. Darius, you said that equity investors need to admit to themselves that they shouldn't buy stocks until they'd be willing to buy bonds, and fixed income investors need to admit to themselves that they shouldn't buy bonds until they'd be willing to buy stocks. Can you kind of elaborate on that a bit, Darius?
6: Yeah, that's a, that just being a bit cheeky in the context of, you know, we're all sort of waiting around for this concept of a Fed pivot, and the reality is, as long as there is a fundamental supply and demand imbalance in, you know, what I would argue is the most important market in the world, which is the U.S. Treasury market, um, there's going to be a fundamental supply and demand imbalance across the entire asset allocation spectrum. You know, just to throw some a couple stats, and 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 I completely agree with Joseph's point. On the Fed's, you know, toolkit, uh, two things I just add quickly to that is that, you know, the Fed doesn't break out new tools, you know, to to, to Ben's point, unless there's a problem. So you expect a problem before the tools before the tools come out. And then secondarily, it's not clear to me that the Fed can supply liquidity and also maintain a tight monetary or restrictive monetary stance, given how hyper-financialized the economy is. You, you know, you fix problems in the financial sector, you're going to be fixing problems in the real economy. We've shown that in our research um, in terms of the, the statistics back in that. But I don't want to bore anybody with that. But just going back to, you know, this concept of a supply and demand imbalance in the Treasury market. You know, if you look at the last four years in terms of the change in the U.S.'s net international investment position, you know, we've, in t- we've, uptaken, uh, we've taken from the rest of the world in terms of capital flows over $10 trillion. Like that's that dwarfs all other years combined in the history of this data set going back to nineteen forty eight. Now, obviously those are nominal numbers, but they're nominal numbers are at a very accelerated rate. And as a function of that, you know, inclusive of you know what we're seeing this year, you know, the dollar's been rip roaring. I would argue the dollar rip move this year is probably more of a dollar short squeeze than, than just bona fide capital flows into the US. But that's neither here nor there. It's going to be very hard for the international community to continue to finance these U.S. Treasury deficits, um, going back to Joseph's point, you know we're tracking at about you know, 1.2 trillion dollars every fiscal year, for, as far as the eye can see, and that's that's not including a recession, right? That those numbers are going to go higher if we have a slowdown in the economy, which I'm not so sure is the modal outcome. Um, I'll just kind of end with this final point, which is, you know, we as investors are all having a difficult time trying to ascertain and as a function of trying to ascertain the difference between real and nominal growth. We've sort of, most of us on this call and this in the spaces have spent our entire careers living in a world where, you know, nominal was real, or, you know, we had the stable 2% inflation. So you didn't really have to think about the differences. But the reality is there are major differences as it relates to, you know, capital allocation, et cetera. You know, for example, I use this example, it's a very specific example in the data. You know, we had that retail sales print. I want to say, you know, last week, last Thursday, and it was obviously pretty bad, they interpreted very negatively by the market. But if you look at it on a three-month annualized basis, we're still tracking at six percent. You know, that's double the double the rate of re- core retail sales growth that we grew at in the prior to the pandemic, in terms of the 2015 to 2019 trend. You know, if you look at nominal GDP at nine percent on a three-month annualized basis, Bloomberg has these monthly nominal GDP statistics that they use the BEA methodology to reconstruct. You know, we're at 9.2% on a three-month annualized basis on nominal GDP through the month of July. You know, that compares to 4% for, you know, the pre-COVID era. So, you know, there's just a lot of cash sloshing around, and it's not clear to me that investors, you know, I keep hearing these recession talks, and you know, I, I very vehemently push back on the concept of a recession being imminent or being the modal outcome, because, again, the 10s, three-month yield curve hasn't inverted. The thing's got a perfect track record, a better track record than everybody on this, on this, on this panel. And until that thing inverts, I don't think we can consider that uh, something breaking or the economy going into recession as the modal outcome. It may, in fact, invert, you know, three, six months from now. But until it inverts, there's going to be a fundamental supply-demand imbalance in the Treasury market, because who the hell needs to own a bond? If a recession, if the bond market itself doesn't see a recession as a modal outcome, amid nine percent nominal GDP growth. So, um, go ahead. Sorry. sorry.
2: So, yeah, I just want to say one thing. Everybody here is trying to model in a steady state, right? Everybody's taking factors and linearly extrapolating. Um, I think the problem with this, you know, is uh, we increasingly live in a nonlinear world. Why is that? Why is that? These things cluster. If you look at the '60s and '70s, everybody thinks that. The Vietnam War, the OPEC embargo, the deglobalization, you know, protectionism, nationalism, we saw the period were completely unrelated to the inflation and the interest rate regime we're in. People refer to those as separate events. The reality is when you're in a, when the cost of money goes up, it's just like any other environment with resource scarcity. You have a scarcity of ability to fund, a scarcity of cash. Um, everybody becomes, you go from a cooperation game to a competition game. That's what we're seeing. It's not a coincidence we're seeing global, um, you know, uh, strife, it's not a, a coincidence we're seeing global protectionism. Um, it's not a coincidence we're seeing deglobalization. Um, I would expect that to continue. I would expect, importantly, remember this, something that looks like an OPEC embargo go again, with the SPRs getting low. Uh, guess what, that was created in the 1970s to protect us against people being able to use Commodities as a weapon, um, you know, it doesn't take much now with the SPR at one third where it was, right? For effort uh, for Saudi Arabia or any any number of countries, right? Russia and and other cohorts, right? To to use it as as a weapon. What happens when that happens? Is that an independent event? Everybody will point at and said, "Oh my gosh, we never could have predicted this." But the reality is these things cluster, and so that's that's the problem with just looking at everything in a steady state at this point.
1: So oftentimes, people people like to say that volatility clusters on the short-term and long-term mean reverts. Sven and Ben, can you speak to the nonlinearity here? What risks are the markets not pricing in? Let's start with Ben here.
4: Yeah, sure. So I think I'm probably the oldest one on this panel. I mean, because I'm definitely old enough to remember when real did not equal nominal. And – I'll tell you where, just in a you know domestic American context. And we can it, look. I, I, I want to leave aside the risks that are in the competitive game that now exists between countries, because Jim is, is, is completely correct on this. Right? So this this is you know we we're in an environment where there is competition between countries, and I don't just mean between you know U.S. and Russia or U.S. and China. I mean, there's competition within the West now around monetary policy. It, it It is an every man for himself. It's the deterioration of the stag hunt in, you know, Rousseau's game theory idea. That's real. But I want to talk about what happens here, who gets hit, and where the cracks are going to build in the real world for... A world where real doesn't equal nominal, where, you know, your real-world activities, maybe you've got pricing power, maybe you can grow at some rate, but your investment portfolio gets eaten away here. And this is the situation that every nonprofit, every foundation and endowment, every pension fund finds themselves in where they've got obligations, they've got, you know, if you're a school or a university, right, so you're, 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 you're finding I can't have pricing power here, and yet on my – and so I'm getting eaten away at inflation, right, labor costs going up, cost of everything going up, I don't have a lot of pricing power, oh, man, I guess i got to make a draw on the endowment. And that was fine, it's been fine for the last 12 years because real equal nominal and markets were going up. And you know, you got used to taking a, I don't know, 5% draw from your endowment. And everyone's involved in this world, right? And this is true for families, this is true for, for you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everybody got very used to living at a level or operating their business at a level where, oh, we need to make a, a little draw from the endowment? No problem. We got it covered. Not a problem at all. And today, it is the problem. It is a huge problem. So all of these entities that I'm talking about, whether it's a big state pension fund, whether it's a little you know, family office <laughs> where, you know, the, the, you know, generation one is supporting generations two and three, and they're all making a draw off of that that pot. That world is now totally changed. And on the big level, that's going to end up in a crack somewhere. It's going to end up in a crack of illiquidity because, <laughs> yeah, you can stay insolvent for a long time, particularly if you've got credit, you're able to borrow, you're able to issue, you know, that, that, Insolvency doesn't kill you, or it takes a long time to kill you. Illiquidity kills you in a nanosecond. So those are the cracks that I think are gonna exist. That's the source of volatility in this world. And you know, that's what I think you have to look out for. But you've also gotta address it in your own, <laughs> in your own assets, and your own liabilities here, because when real doesn't equal nominal, and you've been making a draw, you've, you've gotten your lifestyle or your business a point where you're always kind of making that draw, you're not going to be able to do that. And that's a killer for just everything, just broad swaths across our economy and our lives. So that's the, that's the real risk that I see out of this.
1: I think really good points there. Sven, uh, do you agree? Uh, anything else to comment on there? What risks are the market not pricing in?
5: I think we are all just got to be aware of that the world is changing in, in dramatic ways. And I think the the recent Russia-Ukraine war has highlighted, obviously, the over-dependence on supply chains. On the one hand, uh, the, the issue of globalization reverting back to a new normal is a concern, because our deflationary environment for a long time has been so dependent on that, And so there's a risk factor, of course, that inflation may be stickier for a lot longer than any of us probably like. On the other hand, you can argue, well, some of the key reasons for deflations will continue to be with us, which is technology and demographics, which are continuing to slow down rapidly. And so this is a kind of a negotiation phase that we have to go through the next few years. I would say in, in general, looking at, Obviously, what we've seen with supply chains easing up, with commodity pricing coming down dramatically in some cases, we actually may have some deflationary data points next year. Because keep in mind, everything we're seeing year over year now is going to look very different next year. So there's some opportunity there as well. Geopolitical risk, unfortunately, remains with us because the world seems to be getting more fractured and that is a general concern It's not something anyone can predict at any time uh, and we we're you know we're faced with a world where the democracies as we know them seem to be coming internally ever more paralyzed because they're becoming more polarized and i generally and it's been a concern of mine for years that we have enormous structural issues that require really difficult choices and I don't think we have in any larger western democratic countries we don't have the political cohesion to even tackle them and haven't tried to really tackle them because every government over the last 20 years has so become reliant on the easy money rescues by central banks and The choices that are now coming upon us are very real. Uh, Just go back to rates and and yields, and and to debt. You know the 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 interest payments. Just interest payments. Given the incredible debt construct, are skyrocketing already. Seven hundred ten billion for the U.S. government, up from four hundred eighty six, and that's was a two. That's prior to a two point three percent rate increase. Every time we go higher you end up with a new budget item that's blowing out your existing budget. If you're we talking 4.5% terminal rate, for example, you're talking over a trillion dollars. The U.S. military budget is $745 billion, which is by far the largest item in the U.S. discretionary budget. Personal, uh, interest payments on debt are going to be part of mandatory. Where and how? Are they going to finance anything other than with more debt at even higher rates? There's a math issue there. And I I don't that's why I'm saying this this whole notion of higher for longer is gonna run into a wall very quickly. So I I'm concerned that the debt excesses and easy money excesses over the last twenty years are now coming due and they're unfortunately unless you're talking global debt default at some point the only choice they will eventually have and i think they know that is to cut rates again and go back to easy money it's maybe not any what any oil has may want because it comes back with all the negative side effects such as wealth inequality and what have you but i think we're all kind of trapped here in this in this system so you know i think Ultimately, central bankers are hoping and looking for the earliest excuse. You know, while they're all talking tough now, and we know they can talk a lot—a big game for a while—that uh, the, there is a math reality here that that is staring us right in in the face. So, you know, someone mentioned earlier, corporate—that same issue there. It's 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 not sustainable. You know, Higher for longer is not sustainable. While it may look a lot lower than it was many years ago, that's true, but the obligations are exponentially higher. The the exposure is exponentially higher. So this is this is going to be a tricky phase to, to negotiate through. And uh, you know, I hope I hope uh, cooler heads will prevail on the geopolitical front. You, know, you talk China, Taiwan, Russia, what have you. You know, these are these are ongoing risk factors. But by the way, I I gotta go. Obviously, we have uh, Powell here in a few minutes and then the press conference. So I really appreciate being invited and uh, enjoyed listening to everyone speaking here and uh, look forward to do this again sometime. Thank you. Really
1: appreciate you comments, Sven, as always. So I'm going to kind of move around here with the discussion on recession. A lot of politicians and analysts have discussed recession, obviously one of the biggest topics in finance news right now uh last bear let's kind of let's go over to you for this one warren says she's very worried that the fed will tip this economy into a recession mitch mcconnell says the u.s is likely to tip into a recession as the fed raises interest rates to combat historic inflation to kind of paraphrase a bit of what darius said there's not a recession quite yet what are your thoughts here last bear
3: I actually agree with a lot of what Darius said earlier, which is that, in my view, demand is sort of the, the elephant in the room here with respect to the causes of inflation um, and the fact that the consumer has a very delevered balance sheet um, from the past two years, as well as corporates, is a, is a tough problem for um, the Fed to sort of reverse now as they try to uh, you know, reduce inflation or get to some sort of deflationary pause. Um, And I think that that's also the reason why the economy has chugged along a lot better than I think a lot of people expected um, after stimulus ended and all that kind of stuff is because everyone has a really great balance sheet and people are flush with cash. Um, People are richer than they were before the pandemic. Um, And so the consumer has maintained its strength, I think, a lot more than, than most people have expected. And I think that the tools that the Fed has um, to, you know, to raise interest rates and um, reduce market liquidity is actually, or, you know, as many people have said earlier, are pretty um, ineffective at sort of removing liquid deposits out of people's checking accounts, for example. Um, and it, it's unclear how they sort of achieve that, achieve that goal. Um, so I think that it's, in, in a positive sense, I think that the idea of a, a massive recession a la 2008 Um, at least at this point, doesn't appear to be in the cards. Um, If you look at where things were in 2008, economically things were bad and going downhill very fast um, at this sort of point in the market cycle. Uh, I think if you look at the macroeconomic indicators now, that's just simply not the case. Um, So on the positive side, I think that that's, you know, that hopefully um, you wouldn't see a massive recession that has a lot of human costs associated with it, But at the same time, it also makes the Fed's job, I think, a lot more challenging to be able to achieve their goals. So um, as to, you know, where we ultimately end with respect to a recession, I think that it is probably likely that all this tightening, that the Fed will tighten into a recession. I think that's exactly what they want to do. I think that's how they think that they will achieve their goals. Um, But as to when that's going to happen or whether that's sort of imminent, um, I think that it's still a big question mark because, the amount of deleveraging that's happened across consumers and and corporates
1: so here before minutes drop just in a bit here about six six five and a half minutes uh michael and joseph i'm curious about any comments you might have on what the panel has said so far regarding recessions in the fed
0: um okay so i i was gonna yeah i agree with last bear that you know targeting wealth effects and creating a recession is is what the fed wants and needs what i was going to mention is that um, i put i put another thing in the nest uh, to highlight the stickiness of of core components like what darius and jim referred to um uh, earlier this week or last week i participated in this global real estate panel and You know, uh, attended with attended by some really large asset managers, and this was a very interesting data point that was shared. And you know, the point is that you know, sticky components like rents are still growing at a very healthy clip. And while I expect, you know, so in recent months we've seen. Um, energy prices moderate, and you know, somewhat artificially, to Jim's point about SPR and also uh, China's uh, zero COVID policies. Um, but core has remained strong. Now, I what I kind of think we are headed for uh, for the balance of this decade potentially is this t- what I call a tag team effect, where you're going to see bouts where core then begins to slow. But then, as we inch closer and closer to that um, that energy uh, demand supply demand singularity point, um, you're going to see a resurgence of of energy, and so it's going to make the Fed's job very, very difficult. Um, and you know, one one last thing before minutes drop, I just wanted to you know less you know uh, uh, commit sacrilege and say actually something positive here, <laughs> um, you know. There, there, is a, there is a silver lining to higher uh, risk-free rates because a lot of people talk about the 45 or 50 trillion of underfunded liabilities. Well, what do long, higher long-term risk-free rates do? They discount those liabilities. What do higher risk risk-free, risk-free rates also do? They provide a fixed income for an aging demographic that has been financially repressed for decades because of essentially QE. So so that that is the silver lining but that is point B. The the difficulty of course is hanging on to your marbles from the transition from point A to point B. So that's that's those are my final thoughts.
1: So Joseph can you comment a bit here real quick before minutes drop on the feds difficulty ahead that Michael just mentioned?
7: So I want to go back to the point that everyone has been suggesting that you know the Fed, whether or not we're in recession, I think that misses the point. The whole point of Fed policy is to create a recession. And so if we don't have one, then we are, we're going to have to keep hiking. And you can hear that from Powell where when he says there will be some pain and when he says that maybe we'll have below trend GDP growth for the, for, for a couple of years. So that is part of the plan to get inflation lower. I think the, greatest risk to the Fed is, is actually political in the sense that as you, as you, as you quoted, so there are some politicians who, who are very, who complain about creating a recession. So at a high level, when you're conducting monetary policy, you have a trade-off. Let's say Powell hikes rates by to 50%. Okay. Of course, if we do 50%, everything implodes and we'll, we won't have inflation anymore. Problem solved. But we would also create significant distress in the real economy. So there's going to be a trade-off between how much distress that we, as a s- country, are willing to accept and how much, that will, how, how much inflation will come down. The Fed's, task, the Fed's job is hard in the coming months because it seems like there's increasingly a large percentage of people, or maybe they're very small and very vocal, that's probably right, uh, that they were not willing to accept any recession or any job loss to get inflation down. Now, to the extent that these people will have more political influence, then the Fed will be probably be forced to cut rates sooner than, than they would like. And so we could get into uh, an inflationary spiral, much like we did in the 70s. If you read what Arthur Burns wrote about his experience as Fed chair in the 70s, he would tell you that he could have got inflation down anytime he wanted to. It's just that that would have created a lot of economic havoc and at least the culture and politics at the time didn't seem to be willing to accept that. And if we're in a similar circumstance right now, then maybe the market is is right that Powell starts cutting sometime next year, then it's very likely, in my view, that inflation will go back up and we will be stuck in this spiral where potentially inflation, inflation expectations become ditty anchored. So for the Fed, I think it's whether or not they have the resolve and perhaps the political support to do uh, what what they what what they have to do?
1: All right, sorry to interrupt here, folks, but numbers just dropped, and we're looking at seventy-five bips. So now that we've got this, and and I know everybody wants to take a quick time to kind of go over some things, and Paul will be doing his Q and A in half an hour here at two thirty. Now, how are we feeling about the 75? I know we've, we've had a lot of speculation around 100, and, I, and, a, and a few outliers are out there you know, trying to call for 150. What does the 75 mean for us? This is open to anybody on the panel. Feel free to chime in.
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. So this is Ben. So it's not the 75. It's going to be, is it hawkish, a hawkish 75 or a dovish 75? I, I, I really think it's going to be a hawkish 75. Um, but yeah, you know, that's, that's what will tell the tale of this is whether it is perceived as a Hawkish 75 or a W75.
1: So right now, just looking at spy, there's a pretty sizable red candle here, uh, after the numbers dropped, how do we think the, the markets at large are feeling about this or how they will feel about it?
4: I never look at the stuff right afterwards, right so what you I, I think what you got to look at is what comes out from missionary statements half an hour you know afterwards, and then after uh, Powell gives his his presser right so i mean I mean that, that's when the narrative gets formed on this. that's when the common knowledge gets formed on this till then it's kind of flailing around I don't know the, the, it's, unless the dots can you know. There's other stuff that comes out. People are gonna start making their interpretations of the dots and the you know, all that stuff. So But it's it's I don't pay much attention to what's happening right immediately after.
1: Fair enough. Jim, what are your thoughts? What do you want to see from Powell in the presser today?
2: I mean what I want to see and what we're going to see are two very different things that I think they're so so far apart from one another it's almost irrelevant. Um, I think we're on completely the wrong path. I've been saying this for a while. I think the tools that the Fed um, you know, uh, has are not the correct tools to solve the problem at hand. Um, I do think he's going to be aggressive. I think the argument about recession that we've been talking about is almost irrelevant. It's what everybody's talking about. Are we going to have a recession? Are we not? You know, William McChesney Martin took real rates positive, raised 7.5% when the inflation got going in the 60s. Caused a mild recession uh, for about a year. Uh, And then, you know, the second he stopped because of the recession, uh, inflation skyrocketed to new highs. The economy is not the market. The market is not the economy. This is what is like the biggest lesson that you can learn if you're in financial markets. We've had below trend economic growth in financial markets for almost 40 years. Economic growth during the 60s and 70s was massively above trend. Demand side economics is runs the uh, economy hot. We get more revenue over time. I don't, you know, yes, can they cause some really deep recession by raising rates to 10% at some point? Yes, but it's cyclical. That's the important takeaway. And that recession that we will cause in the short term will only be uh, kind of a cyclical effect within what's a much broader structural outcome. Uh, the recession is not the question. It may be the question in the short term, but it is not what matters to 10 year yields. It is not what matters to the long term trajectory of inflation.
7: Hey, I'll just jump in and add I think the dot plot is some meaningful new information. So, as, as expected, I think that the Fed adjusts and lower its economic growth projections and adjusts its inflation projections higher. So, more stagflationary, so to speak. But I think the biggest move is, has to do with their projected uh, Fed funds rate so now that's been revised up higher meaningfully the last time around they were projecting let's say 3.8 percent at the end of 2023 now it's up almost the entire percentage point to 4.6 2024 dots also revised higher and we can see the two-year jumping uh discreetly up 10 percent so that's that's very hawkish
4: yeah two two years at 4.1 right now
7: so i guess you know that's the, the equity market reaction you guys cited was is in line with with this.
4: Yeah, this is this is very hawkish. I
3: have a I have a question for the for the panel actually. So you guys were talking earlier about how to create steepening in the curve, and I think that I I like the points that you guys were laying out. But wouldn't the Fed wouldn't the easiest way for the Fed to create a steeper curve would be to adjust some of these long term dot plots accordingly? I mean, like that's they're showing I, an inverted curve here.
4: I, I gotta interrupt so. here on this, right? Because I, I, I wanted to say this about the steeper yield curve. That in in order of interest, the Fed cares about bank liquidity and then bank system solvency, and the most distant, distant third is bank system profitability. Right? So that you the a steepened yield curve, the what the, and this gives back to the issue of conventional versus unconventional. I, I'm, I'm here for the unconventional, so I'm really interested in this idea of a, of a bear steepener. But with a steeper long end, the Fed's going to say, by their conventional tools, that is going to embed long-term inflation expectations, and that is the thing they will not ever do. So, I, yeah, I'll leave it I at that. I
7: think end. it's
0: – I would actually I think it's that. I would – just push what? back on that ben by by saying that i think I, it's not the the it to me the intent of a steeper yield curve isn't to uh can allow bank or encourage bank profitability as it is to prevent bank insolvencies because because if if you ju- if the terminal rate really goes up to like 4.6 percent you can pretty much expect the yeah. de- default rates to spike and, and oh, yeah. bank loan collateral you know, to, to go bad.
4: Yeah, I, I, I hear you, but, but on the big banks, I, I mean, you look at the, the, the I, I mean, really, you look at the equity that they've got in there. You look at the the buffers they've got. I mean, I mean that was the big thing that we did a lot better than the Europeans did after the great financial crisis. So I hear you and it could happen, but I, I think they'll cross that bridge if they come to it. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's just just my thought. I'm I'm really I'm all for inventive new tools. I just don't think we're going to get there unless something breaks just really horribly, which it might.
7: <laughs> you know, I think it's really interesting that the 10 is actually up for basic points, so you don't have a flight to safety, and this hawkish move is reverberating up throughout the curve. Um, so if you're a risk parity, you're having a 60-40, You have nowhere to hide today.
6: Supply demand and balance <laughs> <laughs> I heard it from you first man Q4 of last year.
4: Well well guys that's been the story of the last, you know, 3 months is that is that risk parities had nowhere to hide. Right? I I mean even including I guess we'll we'll call it yeah. I'm going to include the commodity complex in there for a real risk parity strategy and um you know, that's just been brutal. Just I, brutal. I think that-
2: I think that really matters for retail. Uh, you haven't seen the one thing we've been looking for on our end is is a delevering by retail. By um, and you know, if you look at equity as a portion of balance sheets, like hasn't gone down anywhere. Like it's obviously short interest on the hedge fund side, its social side is is very high. But if you look at retail and and your know, mom and pop, they have yet to delever um, this risk. You know that risk parity damage will eventually will start opening their statements, retirees, and, and we'll start dumping stocks. I think that's the the last kind of foot to fall on the supply and demand side that we're watching
1: so to kind of pull us back a little to the the conversation of the dot plot and hawkish updates last bear what do you think of the dot plot and the hawkish updates along with risk parity
3: yeah n- no worries uh you guys missed quite the soliloquy so benefit <laughs> of that. Um, no. um i think the only I, I don't know where it cut off so i'll, I'll just kind of repeat the point but um, I, I do think it's interesting that the Fed continues to adjust its rate hike schedule uh, much more aggressively than, than people expected, but it still has not touched the QT um, roll-off schedule, which I think is indicative of um, where the Fed is is you know more aggressive versus more, more cautious, and the potential role that it has on financial markets and liquidity and financial stability. So. I'm not at all surprised that that QT was not adjusted here, but for me the the, you know, one of the risks that is starting to be talked about more, but I think people should focus on is sort of the, the real mechanisms by which the fed tightens liquidity um, from QT, both headline QT as well as sort of under the, under the surface QT with respect to how funds flow into the reverse repo and whatnot. Um, and so, just I'd be curious to, to hear anyone else on the panel what, what their thoughts on are on both you know the QT's effect on liquidity and, and the risks thereof.
1: I know you mentioned uh, uh, you wanted to hear Joseph at last. got to admit, I do too. Joseph, can you comment on that?
7: Yeah, well first of all, I want to congratulate you guys on having a space so large it crashes the system. <laughs> 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 uh, but so I, I don't expect them to adjust QT ever um, so from what I from what I hear from the Fed officials they view QT as something that just runs in the background they want their main tool to be the federal funds rate so I, I don't expect them to just adjust it especially since they basically just moved into full QT and full force this month um, if they do adjust I think it'll it'll be much later but for the foreseeable future I don't think they'll do that. What they could do um, is that they could begin to sell mortgage-backed securities. So the Fed has this limit where they want to, at a maximum, allow $35 billion in mortgages to roll off every month. They don't really have control, actually, how much to roll off a month, though, because the way that mortgages work, there's not a contractual maturity date, and you could prepay it. So, for example, if I have a mortgage and— I move somewhere else and i want to sell my house then when i sell my house um, i take the proceeds of that sale and i prepay my mortgage now that makes the cash flow of a mortgage-backed security unpredictable Uh, based on current projections the feds mortgage portfolio will roll off at about 25 billion dollars a month so there's a 10 billion dollar gap between their maximum cap and what they expect so in theory if they really wanted to tie in financial conditions they could sell maybe $10 billion of mortgage-backed securities a month. Um, there, I think there's maybe one or two Fed officials who have made noises for that, but it doesn't seem like something that's very consensual at the moment. So that's another thing they could do uh, in the coming months.
1: Darius, any additional thoughts there to what Joe? Are?
6: Oh, sorry about that. Uh, not, not anything specific on that. Uh, I'm sorry, I was taking notes on, the, uh, on
1: this uh, statement. Oh, no problem at all. Michael, curious to hear your thoughts here as well uh, on what last bear and.
0: Yeah, I was actually literally about to put out a tweet. I think I think the Asia contagion scenario is front and center for me, and it's become a much more material risk. If you look at the the dollar today, uh, it is just roofing. You have euro at point nine eight now uh, and the Chinese yuan at seven point oh seven, I believe. So, that is something to watch.
7: It even looks like the pound is moving towards parity. That's hard to believe. I think many of us remember a time when the pound was about two to one. Now it's moving towards parity. That's just unbelievable, almost. Yeah, 1.13, I see. Yeah,
3: that's yeah, in here too. But I think all those, you know, the currency moves that you guys are talking about all that does relate to like the sheer availability of dollars which all goes back to you know the point around liquidity which is why I agree I'm not surprised that that they didn't change anything with respect to quantitative tightening but it shows how important um the you know sheer dollar liquidity is um and why they're much more cautious about using that as a tool so on that same point you know
0: um joseph um I would I would love to hear you expound a little bit more on your comment earlier about how Um, You know, how would the Fed create a a um, restrictive environment while keeping the plumbing intact? Because that is that is something that I that I wonder about. Right. Like to me, the bear steepener is is maybe the lesser of two evils. And maybe it accomplishes something like that. But I could I I could still see that even the bear steepener scenario would continue continue strengthening the dollars. So, how do you, how do you see it? Like, if we go into a pretty bad recession and the plumbing of the system is threatened, how do they how do they uh, maintain a restrictive stance in a stagflationary environment while so I would, preventing a complete meltdown system meltdown?
7: I would separate the financial market stuff with the real economy. So, when you can have malfunctions in the in the financial economy simply because mechanics of liquidity or maybe uh, let's say um, a dealer doesn't have enough balance sheet or bouts of risk conversion that have nothing to do with the real economy. Uh, for example, a few years ago, we had a flash crash in the treasury market, right? That had nothing to do with the real economy, just some, something somewhere malfunctions. So when, when it comes to things in the financial markets, the Fed has tremendous amounts of control because it has a money printer and it has shown that it's been willing to open up its money printer to more and more people if you think in the very beginning of the fed what its money printer was used for is to act as a lender of last resort to banks so if a bank suddenly had a liquidity problem which is back then you can think of as the plumbing freezing you have a whole lot of people asking for asking to withdraw their money the bank doesn't have enough cash on hand it has a liquidity squeeze something's something's wrong the fed could step in and lend to it at restrictive rates so that they wouldn't not, so the bank wouldn't become, um, I guess, accustomed to just borrowing from the Fed all the time. So this lender of last resort function can be expanded to any number of participants and any number of markets. And the Fed has already been doing that for the past 20 years, and it seems to continue to expand it. If you think during the financial crisis, they expanded that lender of last resort to the dealers and the money market funds. So there was a run in the money market funds space, and there's a run in the primary dealer space that was causing financial distress. Something that was separate from the real economy. Um, people were not able to get funding, so the Fed stepped in and they lent at um, lent at lent, lent them, provided liquidity and solved that. And they did the same thing during COVID. Now, the the key thing that they could do differently uh, by providing liquidity and also maintaining a restrictive monetary stance is that they're willing to provide liquidity, but instead of, let's say, providing it at favorable favorable rates with relative to the market, they could provide it at higher rates, restrictive rates. So in that sense, because the money is still expensive, but available, you can avoid the liquidity mishaps where someone goes and can't get funded at any price, where, let's say in March 2020, you want to sell something, uh, you can't sell it for liquidity at any price. Um, But if the Fed were to step in, and being willing to provide liquidity to these market participants and particular markets at will, but at a higher price, then you can have the market continue to function. There will be no liquidity prices, but the system continues to be restrictive because the higher rates that the Fed offers uh, is passed out throughout the financial markets and hopefully the real economy. So,
0: what about what about so? Um you know Joseph and I had had some offline discussions about um you know some unconfirmed rumors about the fed being asked by the the boj to 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 help uh basically stymie the relentless decline in the yen and this was uh this was when uh the yen first breached uh the 138 level back in July and you know the rumor that I had that I had heard was that the, the Bank of Japan um, was given the okay by the Fed to essentially buy our tenures to, to essentially paint a picture of, of uh, I guess, uh, yield curve inversion to basically stymie uh, the yen's decline. And uh, obviously, that didn't work out. If, if true, that didn't work out so well because it's, they've given up the ghost at this point. So the, I guess the sentiment I wanted to voice and maybe throw out there for discussion was, you know, it, the, the Fed as a uh, lender of last resort to the rest of the world was all fine and dandy in a world devoid of structural inflation. But I wonder, um, with a resurgence of structural inflation and potentially stagflationary pressures, does it become kind of an everyman for himself now where, you know, I mean, you know, we have inflation issues here domestically that we need to deal with. Um, how are we going to go and essentially help out the Fed or the, the Bank of Japan or the ECB with with their issues?
4: Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll jump on that. I mean, we're back to, you know, big John Connolly days. I, I mean, it's our currency, but it's your problem. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I really think that's what we're back to. I mean, that's just, just as simple as I can put I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the freaking USDJPY. I mean, 144. Good Lord. Right. So, you know, you're going to see some, I, I, I mean, I, I heard the same thing about buying the 10 US 10 years. It's just, Strikes me as too clever by half, and I, I just think you're going to get more and more direct interventions at this point. I just think that's <laughs>
1: it's
7: inevitable at this point.
1: So to the panel, what what do you think that would look? Ben, you're welcome to. On with that. Uh, what would?
4: Uh, just want to say, I mean, direct intervention, direct currency intervention, just buying the shit out of it.
1: And so, do you do you think that that would be the most likely likely course of action?
4: I mean, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, yes, yes, I do.
2: At some point, it becomes the only course of action. I can
4: exactly.
1: Make- <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so, we're kind of on the, the top of Treasuries. As well, last bear. While we wait here, the next five or so minutes. Before Which we will be playing via audio here on Airspace, and but last, Bear, do you want to speak a bit uh, to Treasuries and Chinese experience here?
0: Kind of
3: speak
1: about it from the Chinese perspective.
3: Um, Yeah, I'm not sure how uh, how good I'll I'll be at doing that, but I think that the fact that you know you can get a higher yield here in, in the U.S. while China's trying to, you know, trying to ease their monetary policy to deal with everything that's going on there, which is a a much worse situation, in my opinion, than what's happening here economically between what's going on in the property sector as well as just sort of the broad lack of demand um, and consumption and really the fact that it looks like the entire country is sort of rolling over into a, you know, into a recession. They really don't have a lot of choices. Their currency... Obviously, now is it broached seven here recently. That was a, a big milestone. It's devalued substantially, um, and as they try to loosen monetary policy, um, and at the at the time that the Fed is actively raising it as aggressively as it you know has in recent memory, it's going to be a, a really tough situation for them where they had to pick um, between you know currency and the you know the the monetary stimulus that they're, they're willing to provide to the, to their own economy, and it's also unclear whether that's actually going to be super effective at, at fixing a lot of the problems that they have in their property sector and whatnot. So I think it's for uh, however bad we think it, it might be in the U.S., it's definitely in taller order uh, overseas in China.
4: Hey, guys, 10 years now down on the day. Just thought I'd throw that out.
1: Interesting. So a little bit more before. a press. Owl Joseph, when you look at Fed data, how much do you look at overseas data, like the ECB in China?
7: I think the Fed definitely thinks about that when they're conducting monetary policy, especially since what happens abroad does reverberate back to the US. Uh, financial markets are highly, highly inter- interconnected. But I, I agree with uh, Ben, you know, it's kind of our dollar, your problem, but the Fed is first and foremost concerned about what happens in the US. and when it comes to countries like, advanced countries like Japan in particular, they actually have all the tools they need if they feel that their currency is too weak. Obviously, they could give up their yield curve control target, or they also have, you know, trillions in treasuries that they could monetize uh, into dollars and then, say, sell dollars by yen, or they can buy, borrow money, dollars from the FX swap that they have with the Fed, and take the dollars and, you know, support the yen. There's a, They have a ton of things they can do um, if you know, they, they can't expect the Fed to do all their work for them. Uh, this is true for the Eurozone as well and all the other advanced countries. I think it's much more concerning when you think about developing countries who do have to bear the brunt of a strong dollar. Uh, a lot of developing countries, as, as we see, have trouble uh, maybe feeding themselves or getting the, enough gasoline because the because the dollar strength makes their currencies weak, so they can't buy as much. And those countries, they don't have the tools to, to um, insulate themselves. And that's unfortunate, but I, I don't think it figures very prominently in, in monetary policy here in the US.
1: Fair enough. Thank you so much, Joseph, as always. So in about two minutes, the presser's gonna begin. Like I said, we will be pushing the audio here to this Twitter space, as well as the video and a running chat on the Unusual Whales Twitch. Before we wrap up, I want to kind of just go down the panel again. Any closing thoughts here? And please feel free to plug anything you're working on. We'll probably wrap up shortly after the presser. But if any panelists want to hang out and give any of your thoughts on how the presser goes, please feel free to really, really helpful for people to hear right at the end. So let's just kind of go down the panel. Closing thoughts for the presser here. Let's start with you, Darius. You got to plug? Anything you got left to say?
6: I uh, appreciate you guys for having me on. I'll be quick because I know he's got, we got to get to the presser. So uh, one thing I'll flag in the um, – just kind of going through the notes, the, they revised up their estimate to uh, core PCE, 20 basis points to 4.5% year-end 2022, 40 basis points to 3.1% year-end 2023. Those numbers are inclusive of their, tar, of their policy rate guidance. Now, dot plot is not an official estimate. Powell's going to reiterate that today. But this is an institution that thinks it's going to have its policy rate north of 4.5% at the end of 2023. And they're still not going to be back to target with respect to core PCE, uh, which is their preferred uh, inflation metric. It's not their official target. Headline PCE is their target, but their preferred metric is is core PCE. So the, 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 the bar for a pivot is incredibly high. They basically have to do all this tightening and sit there in order for us to still miss our core PCE target, not ours, theirs, by the end of next year. There will be no pivot anytime soon. Signing off, guys. Thanks again for having me. Come check us out at 42 Macro.
1: Yes, sir. Thanks for coming. Ben, anything you got to push or plug here before we switch over to the presser?
4: Nope. Not pushing or plugging. Uh, I'll just close with uh, what Maya Angelou said. When somebody tells you who they are, believe them the first time. And uh, Jay Powell has been very clear now in telling
3: us who he is.
1: Bear points, Ben. Thanks again for coming. Last bear. Anything final here before we
3: flip to the presser? No, you can follow me here on Twitter. Thanks, guys, for having me. It's always a lot of fun.
1: Appreciate you, man, as always. Joseph, any closing thoughts here?
7: No, thanks so much for coming. Uh, Pleasure meeting, uh, speaking with all the panelists. Thanks so much for listening. And I think we're in a very exciting time for macro and central banking. So, Um, I think we should keep doing these spaces. It's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yes, sir. As always, thanks for coming. Michael, closing thoughts before we switch over?
0: Uh, I just think that capital preservation is the name of the game. Um, I just want to highlight uh, one comment that uh, Bob Prince said in his July um, uh, paper that I think everybody should pay heed to. He said that, you know, right now uh, the markets – at least based on current valuations, have essentially priced in a, a relatively quick pivot. Um, but what is completely not priced in is the potential for a second round of hikes and the resultant massive wealth destruction that would go with that. And that I'm, I'm quoting him. So that is a, a real concern of mine. So uh, with that, I'll leave it. And thank you all so much. This has been fun.
1: Thank you much, Michael. Jem, any closing thoughts here before I switch over to the audio for the presser?
2: Yeah, I'll expound uh, just briefly on that. Uh, you know, important to note, uh, a, a terminal rate of four and a half is still, in my opinion, fairly uh, absurd. When you look at history, uh, you know, the need to take real rates positive significantly. Again, we, we, we lampoon Arthur Burns, yet we all as a market seem to think that, that we're the Fed's going to do even less than Arthur Burns. Uh, that's not what the Fed's telling you. Uh, we are miles away from where uh, the Fed would need to go to to, to even put a dent in this. The, the effects are structural. I'll reiterate my point from the beginning to uh, watch commodities. This pullback we saw 10-year yields go from 3.5 to 2.5 and guess what? They ended up right back here at 3.6 and did a quick round turn. I would not be surprised to see something similar from commodities maybe not before the election but after the election the spr's ability to keep commodities down um, is unlikely um and, and again big tail risk uh, involved uh, there as well oh and last thing to plug one last thing uh, go I, I keep repeating it but kai backslash news encourage you everybody to read our our newsletter a bit long 25 pages but it will really get you under the hood of,
0: of, of history and, and and why we believe structural inflation is here to stay
1: 25 of the best pages you could possibly read I,
0: I think he's really struggling with uh, getting the market to believe him and uh, it, but but yet I don't I don't really blame him at this point I mean the markets are going to do what they're going to do in the short term um, I don't trade short-term movements although you know yesterday I wound up I had a feeling something stupid like this was going to happen I wound up uh, covering my outright shorts but kept all kept my uh, put spreads on um yeah i don't i don't know i i heard a pretty hawkish statement but um you know it, it, it's it's always difficult to predict short-term movements uh and and to know what was embedded in expectations going into the number so
1: all right, so Michael, I have one last question. While I've still got you here, they kind of began with and wrapped up with this this notion of getting inflation back down to two percent. Just before we send everybody on their way, do you think that's still likely, or is he kind of grasping at straws, continuing with that narrative?
0: I mean, look if you if you take him at his word, and obviously the market doesn't seem to, um, then I think I think. And, and and if you uh, believe that they're limited to a Fed funds only toolkit, then I would take the over on on the terminal rate uh, being capped out at four point six percent. So you know I'm I have my doubts that they'll be able to achieve a two percent target. Um, but I think their resolve is going to get tested, obviously, when you see you know some some uh, unemployment metrics start getting worse. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely of the belief that we are in a stagflationary period. And what I said earlier about, you know, the potentially, uh, you know, most damaging rug pull would be to conflate a period of uh, zero to negative GDP growth with deflation and and the ability for the fed to pivot easily i think um i think we're in a different regime and you know the the moral hazard that experienced by all risk markets all markets uh equities bonds crypto real estate these are deeply deeply ingrained animal spirits and um it's going to take a while to break
1: really really great points there michael thank you again for coming everybody who is here? If you came in late, if you got cut off when the space has crashed on us earlier so, so, so rudely, I'm going to, immediately after this, piece this all together into one train of audio for the Unusual Whales pod. You'll be able to find the entire recording of both halves of this space. Again, really apologize for that crash earlier. Twitter likes to troll the whale, as you all know. We will be back again for another Unusual Whales space next week on Friday, September 30th, for the Tesla AI space. We will be going over their event on that. We'll have some experts on here per usual discussing kind of what they're expecting to see, what they want to happen. So, again, I thank you all for coming. The entire recording of this FOMC space will be available on the Unusual Whales Apple pod as well as the spotify and youtube if you missed anything you didn't miss anything i'll get this out to you in the next few hours here thank you all for coming once again can't thank our panelists enough these are completely impossible without these folks sharing their expertise with us follow every single one of these folks guys you're going to learn a lot just by following along with their twitter pages of following along with their newsletters Again, thanks for coming. I've been Nicholas, your friendly neighborhood stoner man, signing off. Have a good rest of your day, folks, and stay safe out there. Thanks for coming.